This podcast is sponsored by Bethany House Publishers. Order Carved in Ebony through Baker Bookhouse and save 30% off plus free shipping. Visit bakerbookhouse.com to purchase. Welcome to episode five of the Carved in Ebony podcast, where we give you bite-sized lessons about the 10 incredible women from Carved in Ebony. I am the author of Carved in Ebony, Jasmine Holmes, and I'm here with my friend, Abina Ansarite. Thank you. Look how quick that was. There were a lot of superlatives <laughs> that I wanted to say, but Abina's a hater, so I did not <laughs> I can't. Them. I did I not can't. say them. Thank I wanted you. to. Abina is a historian and a PhD mm-hmm. candidate at Vanderbilt. For five more months. And For then five I'll more months and then she's going to be done. She's going to be Dr. Ansa Wright. Ah, I love it. Get it, get it, get it. And I'm just Mrs. Holmes. Oh, there's no just about it, Miss. Two published books with several others on the way. I'm a writer and I'm mm-hmm. an independent researcher. I research things and so that's that's this mm-hmm. book is the convergence of the things that i love writing and researching and black women yes yes i'm here for all of the above so today we're going to talk about charlotte fortin grimke and my excitement level for charlotte <laughs> is intense and there are so many reasons first of which you know we already talked about sarah maps douglas and the cool thing about Sarah is that she's connected to Charlotte. So a couple mm-hmm. of the Carved and Ebony ladies have connections. Sarah and Charlotte do. Yeah. And down the line, Sarah G. Stanley and Lucy Craftlini are connected. Mm-hmm. But Sarah is a little bit older than Charlotte, but she was really good friends with Charlotte's aunts. And Sarah came from the Bustle family. The Bustle family was a family of Quakers in philadelphia black quakers the grandfather cyrus was freed by a quaker man after a period of enslavement and was taught a trade and made his family very wealthy and so grace bustle ended up marrying her husband i think his name was richard douglas and they bore three or four children sarah was one of their children and grace bustle douglas was really good friends with James Fortin and Mm. James's grandfather had purchased his own freedom after coming over from from West Africa so like he could trace his ancestry back to West Africa which is incredible and James became (laughs) a sailmaker after a short stint of fighting during the Revolutionary War when he was only 14 years old yeah he was uh on ships during the Revolutionary War so not like frontline stuff but still he got captured Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Then he spent his wow. youth kind of going around England, came back to America, got married, apprenticed with a sailmaker and mm-hmm. the sailmaker, Robert Bridges, a white man, ended up leaving his business to James and James turned that business into gold. And he started a school. He funded William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator or helped fund, but like a big mm-hmm. part of the funds. He was one of the richest black men in America. And he had six children, Sarah, Margareta were really good friends with Sarah Maps Douglas. And so that's where we've heard their names before. Yep. They had a brother who was named Robert Bridges Fortin after mm-hmm. Robert Bridges, the white sailmaker who bequeathed his business to James. Uh-huh. Robert Bridges Fortin had a daughter named Charlotte. 
And Charlotte was raised kind of in between her maternal grandparents and her paternal grandparents Mm -hmm. after her father got married again and moved to Canada because he just didn't have time for racism. And he just was like, I'm done. I can't. I gotta go. I gotta go. You stay here with your grandparents. They're gonna take really good care of you, but I'm tired. But during the Civil War, (laughs) 50-something-year-old Robert was like, I'm coming back. I'm going to fight for freedom. I've never been enslaved a day in my life, right? I'm living in safety in Canada. I grew up in privilege in Philadelphia. But Mm -hmm. if there's a fight for the freedom of black folks in America, I'm coming back. Yep. And, you know, died shortly thereafter. I mean, Mm -hmm. what a a man. What What a a line to come from. What a family. And so then we stumble upon... Charlotte, who is incredible in her own right. I I feel a kinship to Charlotte because she comes from this like illustrious family. And of all people, I should be the person who's like, I've been overshadowed by my pastor dad my entire life. And so I should mm-hmm. be like, Charlotte, you are amazing in your own right. She is, but like <laughs> she's <laughs> just surrounded by this legacy and so she becomes the first black teacher in salem massachusetts to teach white students during the civil war she gets picked up by the union and they're like hey we want you to come to the sea islands and we want you to teach these newly emancipated people on the sea islands and the cool thing about the sea islands was there was a a gigantic enslaved population that lived there but they lived there without white people and so they had their Mm -hmm. own kind of culture they lived in the islands and their white their white enslavers would like come to the islands to oversee their work but they lived on the mainland and so the Gullah people of the sea islands had their own culture that charlotte was able to write about and so she goes from teacher to folklorist and becomes a writer of all of these incredible customs and Mm -hmm. um idiosyncrasies of the people that she is teaching and dwelling with she is sickly she has tuberculosis and so she doesn't stay there long she moves to dc she becomes a teacher in dc she meets francis grimke who i could go on for days about francis grimke and how incredible he is black presbyterian minister 13 years younger than charlotte so like get it girl get it girl good for you i was like okay okay charlotte like she was like i live my life and i'm ready to settle down yeah but i want a young buck i'm not about to settle down with somebody my own age I need you to still be cutting your teeth, young man. And so she gets married to Francis and they have one daughter who dies in her infancy. Um, okay. And they just spend the rest of their life being incredible Orthodox Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. I almost said badass uh, <laughs> Orthodox Presbyterians, but maybe that's I've wanted not the to say right. that so many times. Maybe that's not the right <laughs> phrase. Um <laughs> and Charlotte dies, Francis goes on and continues his legacy of mm-hmm incredibleness and that's the that's the big old and francis is the excellent overview he's a nephew of the grimke sisters who of course we know um sarah and angelina weld grimke Mm -hmm. that is an excellent gushing there you go that was true gushing really (laughs) (laughs) i will not lie i struggle with fulton charlotte fulton Cause she bougie. She's so she's bougie. So bougie. She, oh my goodness. She she used her sickliness. So okay, can we talk about this consumption mm-hmm. or tuberculosis mm-hmm. during the period where Charlotte was alive was like sexy. 
What? Let me tell you. Something I I don't know. Tell me. Teach me. Teach me. Okay. So consumption. (laughs) Women who had consumption were seen as like more romantic, right? Because they had all these features that you wanted. They were super pale and super sickly and like really soft spoken and just like faint. (laughs) And I'm so serious. Like consumption was like a romantic disease. Wow. Okay. And it was a disease of of the gentry right like rich think people why get, yeah rich people get consumption you know yeah. like it's in vogue yeah <laughs> if you died of consumption you, it was almost like you were too good to live if you wow. died of consumption do you know what i'm saying like it, it just was like it was this disease for like for the for the for the pure for the good and so the wow. fact that charlotte had consumption weirdly and like tuberculosis Ain't nobody got time. Nobody wants tuberculosis, okay? Unless it's 1860. And then... (laughs) Then you should get it. It's kind of cool. It's what's hot in the streets. And so the fact that she had consumption was something that she used to her advantage when she was... Yes, when she was living. Isn't that, like, I'm so... That's brand new information to me. I am, like, cheesing. I'm, like, grinning out of my (laughs) face right now because it's so... It's so interesting. Interesting. It's so hilarious. But she used her sickliness to her advantage when she moved down south. She was like, you know, I know that I'm black, but, like, I got consumption. (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking. I'm, like, very much nerding out in my head. I'm like, okay. Yeah, there you go. This makes sense when we Mm -hmm. think about racialization especially Uh of women Uh and black women being you know as early as the 1500s being labeled as you know strong and coarse and able to give birth to a baby and go straight back to the field they were put to the baby in the field in the field on your back and keep picking that cotton right and then contrasted with the delicate white woman so of course it worked in her to her advantage it put her in proximity to whiteness alongside being wealthy and growing up with an incredible education. Yeah. This makes sense. That's crazy. I did not know that. So it's called consumptive chic. Consumptive chic. I'll have to try that out sometimes. Fashion, you know, in fashion as well. Cause you you get skinny. Uh You're sickly. Of course. Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's, that's uh, what's hot in the street. My brain is going to so many different things, I but know, I'll, I'll, book, I'm going to have to stop. Consumptive <laughs> chic. I have to read that. Indeed. When tuberculosis was the height of fashion. That is crazy. Right. I tried wow. to talk about this on Instagram one time and nobody bit. Like I was like, guys. And they were like, nobody cares. So I was like, everybody uh, should care. This is so interesting. I'm, oh my gosh. I'm. There's a million books coming to my head that I'm like, I need to read. Oh, that's so interesting. So it Uh. makes her more, it's like, okay, yes, she bougie. Also important to note, Charlotte did not grow up as rich as her aunts did. They kind of kept her away from that sense of like, she was, she was educated in public schools in Salem. And so Mm -hmm. she, she was homeschooled for most of the time, but then she went to public schools in Salem and was just. I mean, can you imagine being a black teacher of white students in the in, 1850s? No, no, I can't. It's crazy. Homegirl had to survive. Yeah. And so there's a sense in which like she bougie. Okay. Oh, yeah. She but bougie. she's still she's still real. You know, she's like real she's and doing she's, it. She's also her bougie is a mode of survival. Exactly. And she uses it. 
I have to give that to her. You know, she's trying her best to operate in this world and in this space. And also, again, like her father, never lived a day if in slavery mm-hmm. in her life. Was she relatively is. privileged. And still, her diary is full of righteous indignation yeah. at the slavery, at, at the injustice around her, at the Fugitive Slave Act, which we're going to talk about at some point. Absolutely. Something I did want to just kind of point to that you talked about in terms of context is Port Royal and the South Carolina Sea Islands. Um, I think it's really, really important to kind of just contextualize that a little bit. The first thing is you're totally right. Her, I I think her bouge, <laughs> her level of bougie set her up for the environment she was going to be in when she came down south because there are some other missionaries that we're going to we're going to get to talk about that were you know at least around other black missionaries who were there charlotte fulton was in the south carolina sea islands on her own with white missionaries from the north the only other black people were the formerly enslaved people and the Gullah people at that who speak completely different have a wildly different culture and she is there on her own. And so kind of, if you remember a couple episodes back, I really talked about the different waves of abolitionism. By the time we get to the civil war, one of the most popular forms of abolitionism was one of economic argument. So really the idea was Um, If you've heard of free soil movements, the different types, this particular type of abolition was really concerned with a the expansion of slavery and proving that wage labor was lucrative enough that we don't need slavery anymore. So they're trying to say that, you know, this is an old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the new way. Wage labor is better. It's going to be more successful. The Port Royal Experiment, also known as the Sea Islands, they become the Port Royal Experiment, was the first time this is tried out. So Edward L. Pierce, who is an abolitionist and economist from the North, basically goes to Lincoln, writes to Lincoln and is like, hey, can I try this out in South Carolina? Like there are tons of people there who have been abandoned by their masters. It is the perfect place to prove the point that wage labor works. So unlike other places that we'll talk about as we talk about um, Sarah G. Stanley and such like, the contraband camps at Port Royal were a machine. Like elsewhere, it's really kind of hodgepodge, kind of, you know, patchwork piece mm-hmm. together, refugee mm-hmm. camps on the outskirts of battlegrounds and like things like that. Here, this is a system by which there are white people with vested interest in proving that wage labor works. So yep. it's a system. She gets there. The plantations have been turned into these labor camps that are now wage labor camps. The people are being paid, but depending on how much they make, there are huge investors in cotton who are coming there to come, you know, see how it's going, see, look, you know, black people will keep working even if you don't whip them. Like all of those things are what Charlotte is surrounded by. And she's the only black person who is not a former slave who is there. And so to me, I think that's really important to understanding what she was dealing with at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled when I said she was bougie. It's because I really struggled with like 
she is very critical <laughs> and uses a lot of stereotypes well, about even these when people. she's like complimenting them she's like yes. see like these mothers love their children and it's like yeah charlotte <laughs> <laughs> of course of course they do. Of course um, they do. Like, <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like I feel like she almost triggers me because she reminds me of me in that way, and mm. the ways that I've had to like mm-hmm. unlearn criticisms of my own people. Ooh. Of just like, oh well, oh can't yeah, relate. they actually do that too, and they're actually relate. pretty great. <laughs> I, I feel that like before. that's why she gets under my skin because I'm just like, ugh, it's so yeah. icky. But and she's I, so like when you contrast her with somebody like Sarah G. Stanley, like Charlotte in her diary, Charlotte was fierce. Yeah. But when she spoke to people, she was way yes. more diplomatic. Fear and diplomatic and whereas Sarah G. Stanley was like, No. This is some crap. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about it. I her. don't know what you think this is, but it ain't yeah. what it is. So you just need to get like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Get it together. Like, whereas yep. Charlotte was a lot more demure and a lot mm-hmm. more just like, hey, I'm I'm trying to be respectable. I'm trying to navigate these spaces and these areas. And yeah. the, the juxtaposition between her public persona and her private persona is really interesting. 100%. Her reaction to the fugitive slave law was it was what won me over about her because I almost didn't I didn't, almost didn't put her in the book because of her bougie. I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> and it was her family that made me take a second look i was like okay sure. the fortins are incredible like <laughs> so it may be worth you know looking into yeah and then it was a passage that she wrote about an escaped slave who mm-hmm. came to massachusetts and was put on trial and was sent back mm. into slavery and she was i, I should probably let me, let me read it because she was, she was so outraged, um, but so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Today, Massachusetts has again been disgraced. Again, she has showed her submission to slave power. And oh, with what deep sorrow do we think of what will doubtless be the fate of that poor man when he is again consigned to the hours of slavery? With what scorn must the government be regarded, which cowardly assembles thousands of soldiers to satisfy the demands of slaveholders, to deprive of his freedom a man created in God's own image, whose sole offense is the color of his skin. And if resistance is offered to this outrage, these soldiers are to shoot down American citizens without mercy, and this by express order of a government which proudly boasts of being the freest in the world. This on the very soil where the revolution of 1776 began in sight of the battlefield where thousands of brave men fought and died in opposing British tyranny, which was nothing compared with American oppression of today. I love it. I know it sounds dramatic to some people who are listening, but parts of that could have been written today. Yes. There are some parts that I was like, this was written way back then. Because at this point, the future, I mean, before, you know, if you could escape, if you could get north. Okay, mm-hmm. you have a you have a fighting chance. But in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act happens, and it's like if you escape, mm-hmm. we can hunt you down until you die. Yep. And if we find out that somebody knew that you escaped and didn't hunt you down, they go into jail. And bear in mind, <laughs> after the revolution, there was a fugitive slave clause like that yes. existed. So the fugitive slave law of 1850 is because it's lax. Northerners don't have any interest in spending time or resources chasing up 
fugitives. That's so just it, not it incentivizes for sure. Incentivize exactly, mm-hmm. and, it's and it, one it incentivizes the, capturing people who were never enslaved but fit a description. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely, and so yeah, just thinking about whew, the 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 impact of that, and what I what I really like about the passage that you just read is it's so easy to look back on this, and we it's just it's just history and it's just story. And it's like, no, you can hear the pain in her words. You can hear the outrage because this, these are people and thinking yeah. about where she was like, these are people that she probably knew. She probably yeah, and she's like, knew. What's going to happen? Right. She's like, what's going to happen to him? He ran away. He's going to be punished when he goes back home and nobody can, no one can augment that punishment like no. nobody can make it it's completely up to the person who enslaved 100 percent. he, he could maybe he could die he could lose yeah. limbs he could like anything can happen to him yeah that's again we've plugged it so many times but just to encourage people to go and read the sources mm-hmm. you see humanity you see that these are actual these are actual people Mm-hmm. that lived lives that are like you who had hopes and dreams and thoughts and, yes. you know, whims and they get flattened, you know, yeah. when we think about, about it sometimes. Think about the one enslaved woman who was raped by her uncle, had two mm-hmm. children, raped by her white slave holding uncle, had two children, had escaped, was about to be captured, drowned, her children mm. was put on trial and people are like, what a monster. How could she do that? She would rather them die. Mm-hmm. She would rather her children die at her own hands. Yep. Than be sold back into slavery. Mm-hmm. The weight of that. Huge. The weight of that. Ta-Nehisi Coates even talks about that in his book. And says, you know, I would rather have you die at my own hands than have you taken by them. And that is a sentiment that echoes through the history of America. And, and it's, it's just not, it's, it's 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 not a you know, you know, it sounds barbarous to us today, but when you look at tales of women who birthed children in concentration camps and did the exact same thing. Yeah. Because what are we going to do? Like, exactly. I don't want to watch my child Mm -hmm. suffer through the dehumanization that is eating me alive. Mm -hmm. I would rather die. I would rather them die. Yep. Give me liberty or give me death again. Absolutely. Just a completely, it's not a victorious reign. It's a lament. Absolutely. Yeah. And Charlotte understood that. You know, and mm-hmm. so as much as her public life was bougie AF, <laughs> still in her private rumination, you see the depth of her care, the depth mm-hmm. of her concern, because she understood that it wasn't just about enslaved people in the South. It was about all black people in America and our, mm-hmm. our, our citizenship rights and how they were constantly, constantly yeah. being put up for debate and constantly being threatened and and no amount of respectability could protect Mm-mm. ultimately and she knew that and yeah. as a black woman going down south as the only black woman herself like what could, she could have been the victim of so much so much 
Because those, you know, those union lines, they are not solid. Right. Confederate raids constantly. And just the sheer fact that she's just a black woman around union Mm -hmm. soldiers. Exactly. Don't even get me. I have a whole chapter just about that. I know you do. I know you do. (laughs) So just really like. Just about that. Really thinking about what she risked. Yeah. To the extent where consumption was a gift that protected her. <laughs> Insane. What a note to end on, but I have I have no lessons. I that's like said those, Like Yeah. <laughs> those are the lessons. I said what I said. Like <laughs> dwell on the weight. Sometimes that's the appropriate thing yes. to do is just actually dwell on the weight of the thing, yes. you know? I think we can leave it there. And we will see you all next time to talk about Amanda Berry Smith, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the woman who has the quote that is the namesake of the book. Absolutely. God's image carved in ebony. Ah, I cannot wait. We will see you all then and chat again. All right, y'all. Bye. Bye.